that God has laid out. We, we've been telling the whole Christmas story, uh, not Charlie Brown, not the Grinch, not Ralphie, not Santa Claus, not Rudolph, not the night before Christmas, but the whole Christmas story from the whole Bible. So we spent the last three Sunday mornings examining the major promises that God has laid out for the bringing about of Christmas, what we call Christmas, the entrance of the Savior into the world. So that was for at least 4,000 years. Uh, God is the God of history. The Bible is, uh, what is recorded in the Bible didn't happen once upon a time. It didn't happen in a in a uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It happened in history. God is the God of history. And after the first people blew it, they did, God progressively revealed and progressively fulfilled his plan of redemption over the centuries. In the, in the broad sweep of God's unfolding plan, that led up to Christmas. God promised a deliverer, he promised a people, and he promised a king. The promise of the deliverer came about after Adam and Eve were created in God's image. The first man and woman were created in God's image. They were created good. But due to a snaky deceiver, they fell and they chose to rebel against God's good rule. But before God described the painful consequences that would come, he promised them that a deliverer would come, the offspring of the woman would, would come and deliver them from sin and death, from the, the work of the, of the deceiver. After the first man and woman fell, sin and death went viral in, in the human race. After about 2,000 years, it was looking hopeless that people were ever going to get right with God and be delivered from sin and death. But God chose a man named Abraham. Abram, he later changed his name to Abraham. He said that if Abram would go to a, a land that he would show him, he would make of him a great nation, he would make of him a great name. He would multiply his descendants or his offspring as, as numerous as the sand and, and the stars. And that he would bless him and, and his offspring would, would be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. When God first promised this to Abe and his wife Sarah, they were 75 and 65 years old. And at age 99 and, and 89, they still had no kids between them. But God said to them, is anything too hard for the Lord? And one year later, they had kids. They had a child, actually. They named him Isaac, which means he laughs. Isaac had a son, Jacob, to whom God gives the name Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. During a famine, when Israel had increased to 70 people, they, relo they relocate to Egypt in an up-and-coming neighborhood. After 400 years, they had increased to over a million, but they had been enslaved. So through Moses, God frees them and delivers them to the land that he had promised to Abraham. But after entering the land, Israel was not faithfully living under God's rule. After a generation or two of living in the land, it was said, in those days there was no king in Israel, for everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. So Israel was not doing well at displaying God's goodness and living under his good rule. 
they thought their problem was they didn't have a king like the other nations that resulted in a populist movement to make Israel great again. So they complained to Samuel the prophet, and God said to Samuel, they're rejecting my rule over them, but go ahead and give them a king. So uh, they, he anointed a guy named Saul, and Saul was not a good king. He messed up quite a bit. And so uh, God appoints a, a replacement king, David, whom God called a man after his own heart. He said, he's a man after my own heart. And after David had been king for a few years, God promises to give him rest from all his enemies, make his name great, and establish one of his sons as king. Through that son, God said, I will establish your kingdom forever, David. David's son Solomon became king after David dies. Solomon makes uh, a mistake, a big mistake, and don't, don't ever do this. He had 700 wives, not to mention 300 concubines. So his heart strayed from God. Well, yeah, it's going to happen every time. So the, uh, God said, well, judgment is coming on the next generation. So Solomon's son becomes king, and he makes a foolish uh, judgment call, and the nation splits into northern and southern kingdom. And um, the, the northern kingdom is um, becomes so unfaithful that God gives them over to Assyria, and they go into exile. The southern kingdom sort of remains faithful to God. they got a few good kings descended from David, but mostly they're not very good either. So a hundred years later, they go into exile under Babylon. And they, then Babylon gets kicked out, and they come under Persian power. During the hundreds of years of Israel's unfaithfulness and on through the time of the exile, God keeps calling them to repentance, and he keeps promising them, even though you're still not responding very much to my calls for repentance, I'm going to uh, give you a, a good ruler one day, a descendant of David. I'm going to keep my promise to David because I said I'm going to keep my promise to David. I'm going to keep my promise to David. So he kept promising that, that to them again and again. And the promised king became known as the Messiah or the Anointed One. That's where they're placing their hope. And after 70 years of being in exile, a small remnant of Israel returns to the land. They're still under Persian rule. And for 400 years, they're under Persian rule, followed by Greek rule, followed by Roman rule. So the questions are, where is God's promised deliverer? Where is this deliverer that he promised? Where, how would God's people, the offspring of Abraham, be a blessing to all nations when they just keep messing up? And where is the son of David, the promised king, who would defeat the enemies of God's people and rule over a glorious, perfected kingdom? Well, that brings us up to Luke chapter 1. And uh, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for making good on your promise. Even though people who had such privilege fell again and again and again and couldn't bring about the promises on their own. It's your word that was good. And so I pray, Father, that we'll see how faithful you are in giving us a Savior, Christ. Help us, Father, to, to behold his glory through your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. So in Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26, it says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
And he came near to her, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, so uh, angel means messenger. Gabriel was a messenger angel to a tiny little town called Nazareth, to a virgin. So why does he tell us that detail? We'll find out. Um, she's betrothed. Mary is betrothed. That's a legal arrangement, a, a serious engagement that can only be broken by divorce to a man named Joseph who is descendant of David. Gabriel says, Merry Christmas, or greetings. Your God's favored you. And so she's curious about that. She's, she's simultaneously freaked out, and she's uh, intrigued by the greeting. Gabriel is used to these kinds of reactions, so he says, Don't be afraid, but you have found favor with God. And uh, then in verse 31... He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. So now that you've got, we've got the formalities over with, uh, Mary, you're going to get pregnant, bear a son, and name him Jesus. It's a common name. In the Hebrew, it was Yeshua. It's also Joshua. And uh, in the Greek, it comes over to us in English as Jesus. So Joshua, Jesus, very common name in Israel. And he says, he will be great. He will be the son of the most high, and that's God, because you don't get any higher than God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over Jacob's house, or Israel, and his kingdom will never end. Hey, the Messiah. The Messiah. That's what he's talking about. At long last, the promise is going to be made good. As stunning as the news is that she was going to, to give birth to the Messiah, uh, I don't know if she ever had a bumper sticker that said, my child is the Messiah. Probably not. But Mary is stuck on how she will conceive. She's like, well, how is this going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. And in verse 34 and 35, um, Mary asked this question. She knows how babies are made, so she's not ignorant of that. And she knows she's going to be... The betrothal is going to lead to marriage to Joseph, so she, she knows that a child could come about that way, but she's, she's recognizing he's saying, before you come together with Joseph, officially in your marriage, you're going to get pregnant, which could be um, problematic. God has bestowed grace on you. You're going to bear a son. You're going to conceive in your womb. And we know that he's saying that it's going to be miraculous because when she says, how will this be, in verse uh, 35... In verse 34, he answers, The Holy Spirit of God will come upon you. God's power will overtake you, so that the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And now Mary, at that time, probably just understood the Son of God to refer to the Messiah, uh, which was true, and that he would be holy meant that he had a special work of God to do. Uh, as Jesus is further revealed in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, we recognize that the Son of God means that he is equal with God. He's part of the Trinity. At that point, Mary probably didn't get all that. Um, God revealed a lot more about himself through Jesus, and, and so we, we now understand that it's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Mary was at least hearing this said, that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. So Mary could scarcely begin to conceive who she's about to conceive. Mary had not yet heard of another miraculous pregnancy. You see this in verse 36. The angel says to her, 
your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary says, I'm your servant. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. So it's, it's great to follow Mary's example of faith, to just have that simple faith. I don't understand this, but I'm trusting in God's word, and whatever God's word says, I'm good with that. So that's that's pretty good model for faith. Just what I don't understand always what God's word says and how it's going to work out. When, like when God promises he works all things together for good for those who love God, I don't understand how that works out, but I trust his word is, is true. And so Mary's got that kind of faith. So she goes to visit Elizabeth, and she breaks into praise. And so um, it's recorded, her whole praise, um, spoken word poetry kind of thing. She breaks into praise. She probably break dances. Who knows? But what she says toward the end of, of her um, praise is in Luke 1, 54 to 55. God is, because God is causing her to conceive the Messiah, she says he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So she says, this is God making good on his promise to Abraham. I get it. God's fulfilling what he promised Abraham. We almost assume politicians are going to break their promises. Anybody ever think that? Really? You're a very trusting group. Uh, we say, well, that was just campaign. That was just campaign rhetoric. But God never, never, never breaks His promises. Whatever He says, you can absolutely count on it. He he doesn't change his mind. He doesn't think, well, after 2,000 years, they'll just they'll kind of forget about it, and I can just move on and do something else. No, whatever God says, he always does. And this leads us to the Christmas story that we've read, the, that we're familiar with in chapter 2. And it's just amazing that in recording the events of Jesus' birth, Luke is very careful to place everything in history because, like in our age, there are skeptics who say, well, the Bible is just kind of mythology, and it's just, it could happen. It doesn't really matter whether the events really happened or not. It just matters whether they give us, make us, give us spiritual warm feelings. No, the Bible absolutely had to happen in history. And so this, not the least of which is the birth of Jesus. So he gives us some um, historical markers. He says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus in all the world. This is verse 1 of chapter 2. All the world to be registered. Happened during the first registration when Quirinius was governor. I know that you all pronounced that Quirinius when we were reading it, so you're good. And uh, so the Roman IRS required you to register for taxation in the town of your origin. So for Joseph, that was Bethlehem, so he has to go to Bethlehem because he was of the line of David. And by the way, you don't read anything about Mary being on a donkey. I mean, she could have been, but, but it doesn't say that. She, she um, <clears throat> fortunately for Joseph, though, she starts having contractions. So he's guaranteed to get a tax deduction for this year. In verse 6, we see while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. 
and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So she gives birth to her firstborn. She had other kids after Jesus, after Joseph and her got married officially. Luke doesn't mention whether Joseph helped deliver or whether he passed out. Uh, my wife assumes that he, he couldn't have done it, and there had to be other women who, who participated in that, who were, who were midwives. Maybe Joseph had a midwife crisis, I don't know. She wraps the baby in strips of cloth to keep him warm and snug. She lays him in an animal's feeding trough because there is no room for them in the inn. Now, basically, all that means is they, they couldn't find a place for her to give birth. Not saying necessarily that the Holiday Inn was was um, the problem, and it doesn't talk about a cranky innkeeper. We we make a big deal about the innkeeper, but there's no mention of that there. The inn probably refers to a, a public overnight shelter, lodging place for caravans, or it could have been a, a guest room in a in a house that had a, a lower room for animals. It doesn't say that they were in a stable. They could have been. Some th- think it could have been a cave. At any rate, they they ended up in some kind of place for animals. So that God didn't give us more details means that we don't need more details. Unless we're making movies and stories. We want more details. What it does mean is he was emphasizing the humble birth circumstances of the Savior. How could the newborn king, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, Lord, be born in an animal room in a small town. And Mary can't even do Facebook posts. Think of all the fanfare around the the birth of, uh, of the baby of William and Kate, Prince William and Kate of England. I mean, they had like day after day after day of every new, every little detail, everything that what they wore, I mean, it was massive coverage. It was a huge celebration. You can't even imagine how much detail that we were exposed to over those, over those weeks and months. But Jesus, no, it just, he just gets a, like one line, born, laid in the feeding trough, boom. In verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appears to shepherds. Why is the angelic birth announcement made to shepherds? Why not CNN? Well, because Jesus didn't come only for the the privileged and the elite. He came for the poor and the humble, the everyday people. The lowly and the humble were a lot more responsive to Jesus than than the, the powerful and the prominent. And, of course, the shepherds are freaking out. They're not used to this. They feared with great fear. They feared with mega fear. So the angels have to always say this, stop being afraid, I'm not going to hurt you, for I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel. That's the same word, the gospel. The gospel of mega joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, yes, you shepherds, Unto you, uh, yeah, for all people, but but to you, a Savior is born. A Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. The baby born in David's city is 
a Savior. He's the promised deliverer. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one of David's lineage, the king who would rule forever. He's the Lord, and that word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So you got the New Testament, originally in Greek, comes over to us from Greek to English. The, New Test- the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there was a, a Greek version of it called the Septuagint. This is for extra credit. And uh, that, that word in Lord in the Old Testament was the same, Greek version of the Old Testament was the same uh, word for, for God in the Greek. So ultimately, Lord meant God. They might have taken it just to be an exalted um, king, and that, that's much they needed to understand at that point. But he is the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. In verse 12, they said, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. So what is amazing isn't that the, ba- the baby's wrapped in swaddling claws. I mean, that's, that's standard how you kept the baby warm and how you kept the baby snug in those days. But what was amazing is that the Messiah, the Lord, the King, is born and lay in an animal feeding trough. That's what's amazing. And then with that saying, a whole host, literally a whole army of angels shows up, praising God, saying glory to God in the highest, talking about heaven. So all of heaven is praising God right now. We're just showing up so you can hear some of the heavenly praise that's, that's, that's happening. We're giving you a, a preview of that. All in heaven are glorifying God. And what, what for earth? On earth, peace. People of his pleasure, people on whom his favor rests. Peace is the friendly, agreeable relationship between God and people. It's, it's good to be in good terms with God. That's called peace. It's in the Hebrew, it's shalom. It's a good, non-conflictive environment, healthy environment, robust environment, where righteousness and peace dwell together. At last, what was broken when our first parents sinned in the garden, peace between God and man can be restored. The fall resulted in alienation from God and antagonism toward God. We were alienated from God and we became antagonistic toward God. Now through the Savior, Christ the Lord, people can have peace with God. In 1962, Canadian missionaries Don and Carol Richardson began serving among the cannibalistic Sawi tribes of western New Guinea, today called Irian Jaya. The Sawi honored treachery as an ideal. They thought, hey, the more treacherous, the better. They befriended people of other villages with the intent of later betraying, killing, and even eating them. So if they said, do you want to come over to my house for dinner? You might be, be dinner. The first time Don Richardson shared the story of Judas, the scary betraying Jesus, the Sally proclaimed Judas the hero. Way to go, Judas. That's awesome. The Richardsons ministered to a pair of neighboring villages, the Hanam and the Kamur, that were constantly warring against each other. After several months, 
the Richardsons were not able to convince the two settlements to stop fighting. They just couldn't get them to quit fighting. Be nice to one another. No, they just kept fighting. So they said, well, we're leaving then. If you're not going to quit fighting, we're, we're taking off. We're out of here. And the Sawi didn't want to lose the benefits of having the Western people around. They had good tools. They, they had good health care. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll play nice. We'll, we'll make peace. And the Richardsons wondered, of course, how are they going to do this? Because they had this long history of hatred, treachery, and, and distrust. The morning after announcing their intention to make peace, first a leader from Hanam, then a leader from Kamur, started to carry one of their own infant sons toward the neighboring enemy village. The father from Hanam was prevented from doing so by his family. His family said, no, stop. And the other, was, um, the other one chickened out. But suddenly a young Kamur father named Kayo picked up his six-month-old son, his only child, and began running swiftly toward Hanam. Kayo's wife tries to stop him, but she falls in the mud, and she's not able to stop him. When Kayo arrived at Hanam, he came face to face with a line of his mortal enemies. Mahor, he calls out to one of them. When Mahor stepped forward, Kayo asked, Mahor, will you plead the words of Kamor people among your people? When Mahor stated he would, Kayo continued, Then I give you my son. He takes the baby, and Mahor then announced to all who, who, for all to hear, it is enough. I will surely plead for peace between us. Those who accept this child as a basis for peace, come and lay hands on him. So the men and women and children of Hanam eagerly filed by, each placing his or her hands on, on the Kamor infant. Then an infant from Hanam was presented to Kayo, who made the same sort of pledge that Mahor had pronounced moments earlier. When Kao returned to the village, the people of Kamor placed their hands on the, on the Hanam child as the basis for maintaining peace with, this, with that settlement. Don Richardson feared that harm might come to the infants who had been given to the enemy villagers. But he was assured that those children would be carefully protected so peace could, be, could continue between the two uh, settlements. When, when Don Richardson asked why all this was necessary, the Sawi answered, you've been urging us to make peace. Don't you know it's impossible to have peace without a peace child? Jesus Christ was the ultimate peace child. Well, you might be thinking, well, that's a moving story. That's, that's a great story. And that was nice of God to do that. But I don't, I don't think I was really hostile toward God. So... He really shouldn't have gone through all that trouble. But when you see the price of peace with God, that tells you that you didn't realize how severely alienated from God you were because the parallel in this story, in this illustration of the Sawi peace children, is that, that they gave their children to each other to make peace. That's what God did for us in giving us Jesus, sending him into the world. But where the, the parallel breaks down is the only way that peace could be accomplished for us was Jesus had to be sacrificed. He had to be killed to bear our sins and make peace between us and God. The price of peace was Christ's blood shed on the cross. As it says in Colossians 1.20, he made peace by the blood of, of his cross. 
or it says in Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. In verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they go in a hurry and find Mary and Joseph. The shepherds respond to the good news right away. They see the baby in the animal feeding trough. The reality of this baby, who the angel said was Savior, Messiah, and Lord, um, being in a feeding trough doesn't cause him to say, wait a minute, is this really good news? The Messiah in an animal shelter? Have we been listening to fake news? No, the shepherds believe what God revealed, that this is the Messiah. They trusted God's word rather than any preconceptions of what the Savior Messiah should be. They share what the Lord revealed to them. What we learn of Jesus through God's word, we must believe it over against what the world says a Savior should be and and make it known. And in verse 18, all who wondered at what the shepherds told them, all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. And in verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So the crowds who heard the news as they were doing their Christmas shopping wondered about what they were hearing. And Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. And that's a good idea, to, to, take, to make space and time in your everyday to treasure and ponder what you're learning about Jesus. It's a very healthy habit to get into. The shepherds are a good model of true faith for us because they didn't just intellectually believe he was the Messiah. Oh yeah, it was good that they they heard God's word pronounced to the angels and they believed it. And they they weren't stumbled by the the, um, non-glorious presentation of the Messiah. They they believed it and they they recognized this, this was true. But not only did they do that, that not only did they believe he's a Savior, he's the Messiah, he's Lord, but true faith in Christ expresses itself in glorifying and praising God because faith exalts in God's greatness and beauty and mercy revealed in Jesus and exalts in the greatness of salvation in Christ. So where we really believe who Christ is, we, we cannot help but to joyfully praise and celebrate who he is. So... Worship is not just something that we do when we gather. It's certainly something we do when we gather, but, but our response to Jesus is always to exalt him and to, to joyfully trust in him and to give, give praise to him. Because faith exalts in God's greatness and beauty and mercy revealed in Jesus. How humble of Almighty God, Almighty God, who created us and had every right to just let us go our own way. How humble of him to rescue us this way. He didn't come in a display of outward glory. He came as an infant in Nazareth and born in Bethlehem to a poor family in an animal, animal feeding trough. His life and death did not match people's expectations. He wasn't born like a king. He didn't live like a king. He certainly didn't die like a king. 
He was nonetheless God's promised and long-awaited son, king. The messianic son had finally been born, but the setting of the birth gives, gives us the first hint at the beginning of his life that he wasn't going to uh, meet everybody's expectations. Now, we, we want the best for our children. Is that true? Like, do you want the best for your children? Do you still want the best for your children, even if they're grown up? Good. God wanted the best for his kids. And he wanted the best ultimately for his son as well. But he was willing to send him away from his glorious dwelling as a vulnerable human into our world of pain, suffering, and death. To be rejected, scorned, and murdered. He gave up a son to be rejected, scorned, and murdered. That was his assignment. That's what it meant for him to be faithful to his father, was to go through that. And not just for no reason, but for becoming the sin bearer, bearing the punishment for our sins, so we could be forgiven and freed. That, I mean, that's crazy. How could God do that? That's not fair. But if God had, not, had given us what is fair, we would not have a very good future. This was the rescue mission of the promised son, the deliverer, Abraham's offspring, who will return to rule as David's offspring forever. So let's trust and treasure this good news, this gospel of great joy, that for you and for me, God sent his son to be your savior, the Messiah King, the Lord, Peace child. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and, and we're going to continue our worship through giving and further praise. Father, what you've done far outstrips any gifts that we can give, whether it's our finances for the, for the ministry of your work through the church whether it's giving our time and service, whether it's giving of ourselves to help those in need. All these things, Father, are good for us to do. You want us to be, you want us to be good givers, grace-filled givers, because that's who you are. That's what your son is. But our little gifts are expressions of our trust in you, that we value you, that we give the things that you've given to us to be stewards of, to enjoy, and to give it to the in terms of our finances for the work of your kingdom. That's not all we do in terms of giving, but, but it's part of what we do. So we, we do pray, Father, express the attitudes of our hearts that we trust in you. We value getting the good news of the gospel of the peace child, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Deliverer, the, the promised Son to our community, to our families, and among the nations. So do take these gifts, Father, multiply them, make them effective for that purpose, for, for the spreading of further glorifying and praise, seeing your great and awesome name. And we, we do ask, Father, that you would cause us to keep growing in, in pondering and treasuring Jesus in our hearts so that it just he just oozes out of our lives and we grow to become more and more like him. We, we really lo- long for that, Father. We say that. I say that a lot, but but that's... 
There's nothing better than that. That's what you saved us for, was to make us like your son. So continue to just cause the glory of who he is to work deeply into our hearts and to our lives. Thank you for giving us the amazing gift of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.